In this episode, I'm going to start off with a show and tell. I'm going to show you guys the squash blossom I just finished, all hand wrought, um, kind of describe how I made it. Then we're going to talk about some music that I've been listening to, share some music with you guys that I've been just marinating in. Uh, we're going to go through Halloween's uh, little quick thing on uh, Halloween. There's a big clip going around and I've got a whole little thing on it. And then uh, Tucker Carlson is a prophet and we, we're, we're, even, we're prophets to the prophet because we, we were talking about this topic last week. And then Tucker talks about it on Theo Vaughn and then it becomes a thing. So there's that. And then finally, I really do want to get into this. Uh, I've been obsessing with William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, and I want to share some of his life because I found it quite powerful for myself. Before we do, uh, if you like this show, would you please help us support the show by, um, you can get a candle, St. Poncho candles that we burn here on the show. You could also buy some of my jewelry. Uh, at chadbarella.com. And when you do purchase anything, it's FGS10 at checkout for 10% off. And um, yeah, I think that's about it. Oh, and then the announcement. We are, uh, this, this piece here, this uh, squash blossom, along with a bunch of other pieces, will be available on November 10th with my Fall Heritage release. So be sure to set your calendars. And with that, let's get into the show. Okay, so this piece I just made yesterday, all hand wrought. This is a heavy, pretty nice little squash blossom necklace right here. Is that the closest cut in you got? There you go. Uh, I like my finishes pretty dark. So as you can tell, it's like kind of aged looking. Got that uh, Tufa cast nausea right here. So that's, that's cast... Um, out of Tufa, Petrified Ash, I showed that on one of the early episodes of the show. And so this nausea here, this centerpiece, was cast out of uh, some old silver and connected and beaded on this chain. And it's got, what, 12 blossoms? And each one of those blossoms takes a little while to make. So these, are, these pieces are like a commitment piece. Uh, when you set out to make one, I've made about t almost 10 now, probably about 10 of these now. And uh, each bead is handmade. You dome them. I got a video on my Instagram, Chad Barella on Instagram, where I make these beads. I think it's a pinned video. It might not be, but yeah, these are all fully custom. All the blossoms fully custom made. And then I also do the hand uh, or the, uh, the hardware on the back out of some round wire myself. So the whole thing is fully custom, 100%, heavy piece of jewelry, all sterling, cool piece. But this and a lot of other pieces will be available, I think, next Friday. So the next podcast that goes up, this and a lot of other pieces are going to be with it. But uh, Is the squash possum, is that traditionally more masculine or feminine? Like the traditional, does it matter? Uh, no, not necessarily. Um, yeah, you find like Stevie Ray Vaughan was popular for wearing squash blossoms, I believe. Same with Jimi Hendrix. Uh, okay. In fact, Jimi Hendrix, there's a, a whole story on this, but he kind of revived the turquoise jewelry 
business back in the um because it's had many different phases you know it's it had the early days it had the fred harvey was like the big boom of like some of the more mass-produced cheaper stuff and then uh yeah in the 60s and early 70s it had a big big boom partially because of the hippies and you know the, the rock and roll movement a lot of them liked the turquoise that was a big part of their vibe but Jimi hendrix wore it but then you also get the women wearing them no i, I think they're a very unisex they're a strong piece of jewelry. It's more just like a statement piece, you know? Yeah, it is. I was going to say it looks tough, but like it could be, depending on how you wear it or how you, you know, what you dress it with, I could see it kind of working either way. It's a really cool piece. Right. It is a type of piece that's like, you know, it's an investment uh, of time and work as well as financially. So, but it's like a special piece. The nausea itself, um, nausea's kind of have different meetings for different cultures. Like, I, I don't know that any one culture can kind of claim the nausea. However, I do think as far as American culture is concerned, it was introduced by the Spaniards, as was Tufa Casting, or the work of silver in general. And so, but they would adorn their horses with it right there on the, on the, the forehead of the horse. They were nauseas. There was a bunch of different uh, thing, but I think it originally actually came from the shape of a horseshoe from the horse as well. So that's kind of that lore of it and then obviously the navajo and had taken then you can go even way further back um to ancient obviously um cultures that have used the nausea that wasn't probably called the nausea but yeah it's got a, a mixed a mixed i don't know symbolized history informed history but that's that you'll get close-up pictures of it next friday it's a pretty fun piece. Proud of that. Anyway, moving on. I've been listening to this guy, right? So I mentioned him on the last episode. I was talking to my son um, about the Daniel and the Lion, uh, Lion's Den. And so this is Joseph DeCosimo. And this song is called Trouble. So it's the, I believe it's the first one. And he, he plays it live. This guy's awesome, though. I think I was listening to like some sort of like um, folk Americana playlist and he came up and I was, I was just kind of like, I don't know. It's like, I'm listening to music now and I think the naked singing, that's all it is on the record as well. It's just this bare singing and I love it because it's just honest. There's no facade. It's pure. Not that there's anything wrong with like, you know, a little theater here and there, but maybe it's just where I'm at right now. I'm like, just pure, just unfiltered natural music. But I came across them and I loved this song. This is the song I shared with my kids. We've been singing this one for the last two weeks. And go to the next one. Check out this banjo. I'm on this like kick of I really want to like get a few guys together and just once a week, once a month, get together and just play old folk songs together around a campfire and a beer. Look at that thing. Fretless. Mm-hmm. 
It's awesome because he's also per, you know doing percussion with it. I like how unruly it sounds. It sounds right. like big. Yeah, I believe he's from North Carolina, and like he's he's got connections with all the old dogs in the bluegrass folk world, I guess. But he does a lot of these videos on YouTube. Joe Joseph DeCosimo, check him out. He does like um, like he'll tell kind of like a story. He also does like kind of lessons on banjo. I saw, and he'd be a good guy to learn from actually. If I had one, I would. There's a kind of a wide range of different types of banjos I didn't realize. Different materials. Like that just looks like a drum, like the one behind me, you know? Yeah, it looks like it has a hide like top too. Oh, I love the material on that thing. It's like mahogany neck. Beautiful. So because of this and my kick on this music right now, I'll probably be, and the prices of a property in that area and the, and the Appalachian Mountains and, and such, I'm probably going to move there. Look at this. I've been following this account, Appalachian Fan Fiction. And the prices, this, is, this isn't even like that good. This is decent, but like you can buy an entire business front, multifamily like building for 179,000 you know in Appalachia it, they're dead it's dead there's no foot traffic there so if you want to like run an online business it might be a cool idea to go grab a couple friends and move out there there was like a house for $40,000 like a three bed two bath house a historic house too maybe it was 70 it was like 40 to 70,000 from my memory and I'm like you can buy a house you know pretty easily out there and I think it's mostly because most people have left. They've just fled Appalachia. It doesn't seem like an area with a ton of opportunity. You can look, I don't know if you've studied the history of Appalachia. I haven't in depth at all, mm -hmm. but the little bits that I've learned about it, it's just kind of sad, like the, you know, what's happened there. You know, I recently came across a video. I suggested a video. I wonder if you could find it. It's like a long, it's like an hour, two hour long where one guy goes to Appalachia and get, kind of gets the inside baseball. And he goes door to door. He's like, just going up and down talking to people. Who should I talk to? What's the story? Why are you guys here? How long have you been here? What's the culture like? And, um, and it was an eye-opening thing. Like he goes to different areas and where that town was, I'm, I, he, I, I think he visited, it looked exactly like that. And there's very few people that are actually still there. And it is like very 50% are like on fentanyl, on drugs. And then 50% are like working as coal miners. Like that's pretty much what it is. That's the economy. There's no jobs. And that's why, you know, houses are so cheap. It's because there's no work. There's no one there. It's some guy that does like what it's like in Appalachia. And it's like a, a modern guy. I'm seeing one that says poorest region of America, what it really looks like. Maybe. Check it out. I'll kind of skip to the middle here. Is it like an hour, two hours long? Uh, it's like an hour. Yeah. Like he talks to some kids. Yeah, this is it. I'm from Utah. I'm from Oregon. You know Appalachia pretty well. Oh, they're like on mission to Appalachia? Yeah. Dang. Watch, go to the beginning. Like not the beginning, but like the first, you could see like the first group of people he meets. It just rained and he like just, 
school children that she's a teacher. Okay. Good. Good to you. Nah, it's a rental truck. Oh, okay. Yeah. Your name? Peter Santanello. Peter Santanello. Well, nice to meet you. Yeah, you too, T. You, you wouldn't find a better man than T. <laughs> so pause it. He's the best. There's a lot of tropes about Appalachia, you know, like the inbreeding and the, you know, there's no, it's almost as if like it's shrouded in negative press. It's in negativity. But after watching this video, I was like, it's, it is sad. Like a large portion of the population, as these guys say, um, has, has succumbed to drugs and degeneracy. But well, he does talk to a couple of funny people because it kind of maybe it lines up with some of the tropes, but it uh, but it's also kind of nice. It's like some Christian men who just like, yeah, this is where I live. This is my heritage. This is where I want to stay. I don't want to go anywhere else. And uh, they're like real. Like, and then he interviews some boys later on, and they're fishing. I wonder if you could find that part. And he talks to them for a while, like probably like sixteen year old kids. And one of these kids knows a lot of history like a very smart kid. And uh, one of these other kids knows how to fix an entire truck. And I'm like, this is, it's, it's like a, a blast from the past. When I watched that, I, I, I was glued to the screen. I watched the entire one. Th does it show them, the kids? Yeah. You guys mind if I film this? Is that cool? Let's see if I can hook into it. If I hook into it, you can film the whole thing. I gotta get down in here though. I don't think you'll be able to get down in here. It's all mud. I'll get you from above. These are my buddies. That was beating my pole up under the bridge. And then I, that one that I just hooked. It's right there on this road, yeah, dude. That, that one big one is like that. Am I scaring the fish uh, sitting not, up here? Not really, but I believe I done scared them because I hooked that big one and then it broke me off. And, but uh, that kid just here. talks him to death and then he sings him a song. It's really awesome. It's really fascinating. Diesel mechanic. Yeah. You're going to school for it, right? Yeah. Cool. Good to hear these stories because I was just downtown and they're saying kids aren't working at all these days. That kid, sorry. Nice. And your boy's here from uh, Indiana? Yeah. You work at Dairy Queen? Yep. Manager at Dairy Queen. That's like manager. only jobs. Dairy Queen. How old are you? I think the Walmart even closed down. Are you the youngest manager? So they're kind of like in a food desert? Blew up in 1939. What the mine? This yeah. kid's awesome. Uh, killed like fifty people. It's still up there too. Whoa! There's a carving on the mine entrance with the date on it. They brought a bunch of Italian uh, sculptors in here to do it. Oh no way! It says 1937 on it. The guy I know, Ed Talbot, he's going to start making a heritage trail up there very soon. Cool. So, so you guys really respect your miners. Yes, sir. No, that's what the but my really favorite parts of this is that there's such an honor and respect for the heritage, for their not, parents, not for War, the culture. This county supplied uh, units for. It's almost like a primitive culture, like mm -hmm. all built in. on a natural Virginia, resource. Calvary, Kentucky, Calvary, and when that dries and, up, the yeah. community yeah. dries up too. Yeah. It's really interesting. It is sad. What really got me into it was my grandma telling me stories about my papa. So he was talking about his his family has like direct heritage to the Civil War to the the South and fighting, and he actually gives some interesting insight uh, on that whole story. All that that's what really got me into it. Anyways, we'll get more into some of this stuff a little later on. Fascinating video. Check it out if you guys get a chance. It's like genuinely was kind of like borderline. It was definitely perspective changing. Um. So last week we were talking about 
architecture and design oppression. You remember? Yeah, yeah. That was an interesting conversation. Are we going to dig more into that? We are. Um, but before we do, Tucker is a prophet. And uh, I'm sure you saw that meme going around today, like the kids and the parents stealing the candy. Oh, yeah. It was everywhere. But go to this one first. This was from uh, Theo Vaughn and Tucker Carlson. I think this came out yesterday. Sometimes I think America was just this Christian experiment yes. that got <laughs> compromised and has turned out poorly. <laughs> you think? Yes, I, I think you're onto something. Man. And I hate to say that because a part of me doesn't really want to admit it. Well, it's obviously true. It's obviously true. I mean, you can't have a democracy unless it's a voluntary system. People have to show a lot of restraint. They have to be all in. There has to be some sense of the common good. You can't just be like, how much can I grab? Here it is. It's like Halloween. It doesn't work if all the kids just empty the basket on the front steps. You know, you <laughs> it literally came out yesterday. No, it's true, though. No, you're right. And, and a democracy is very much the same way because you can take power and then just, like, steal everybody's money legally. And yeah. so you really have to That's have good. some boundaries. Do you think Tucker is sponsored by that, uh, like, nicotine company, whatever that thing is? Zinn? Zinn nicotine. Yeah, no, yeah, I don't like know. On every one of his videos, and if if someone's going to get me into nicotine, it's going to be Tucker. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, I guess it raises your testosterone. He talks about that in the episode. It Tobacco. also helps with like focus and like. There's all kinds of like interesting facts about the benefits of nicotine. Obviously, outside of tobacco and like you know. Yeah. Now go to the clip. Let's watch it. And the parents are just complicit. Oh, it's just so sad. And then all the other kids that come up later. Where's the candy? No candy. Oh, it makes me... I'm sure it makes a lot of people upset. And then somebody made a pretty funny meme. The next one. Oh my gosh. <laughs> this is Israel and Ukraine looting America. <laughs> Sorry, I had to. It's timely. It is. But not all is lost, because then I came across this next one. Where a kid spots a kid spots an empty one and it's a kid in a costume, empty bowl. I think the other clips play in the background. Yeah, so this kid, you know, sees an empty bowl and he sees another family coming up and he's like, oh, I'll put some candy in for her. Oh, nice. uh, yeah, there's a little girl that comes up right after him, so he puts some for her. Yeah, How some of his own, yeah. The way it should be, brother. Ah, uh, moving swiftly on. So Tucker had another sweet clip. Um, this was where he touches on, I think this is the one. Yeah, this is that clip where they're talking about exactly what we were talking about last week. Specifically, the architecture, how design is oppressive. It's design. He thinks and says that it's explicitly designed to make us depressed, to make us not achieve. Um, specifically, like the MVD. You know, what's interesting is you drive through. I like to hunt and fish, so I've been in a lot of small towns in America because that's where the hunting and the fishing. Oh is. yeah, and um, some of these towns, and especially the county seats mm -hmm. in rural towns, have beautiful courthouses, mm -hmm. beautiful. Like somebody spent a lot of money and a lot of time to make a beautiful public building. One of those hasn't been built since the Second World War. That is true. Probably since the 30s, since the Depression. Wow. Your state especially. 
you've got a lot of great public architecture in Louisiana. None of it has been built since Huey Long was murdered. Mm. Okay. So why is that? And it's been replaced by disposable garbage in the dollar store. I'm sorry to single them out, but they are a symbol of it. It's so intentionally ugly. Box stores are so ugly. You're like, there's gotta be a purpose behind, you know, architecture exists for a reason. You're sending a message when you build a building, right. when you build anything. And the message of box stores and dollar stores and of public, the DMV is, you mean nothing. We're not gonna spend any time or any energy trying to elevate you or please your senses or build anything beautiful. It's ugly on purpose to let you know that you mean nothing. You do not count. Shut up and obey. You're an animal, actually. And I just feel like there's something very profound about that, the message that it sends. And everyone receives the message, whether they know mm -hmm. it or not. You go into a DMV, and what's it telling you? Wait your turn, wait for your number, and then some surly low IQ person like yeah. hassles you over. It's like, I'm a citizen of this country. Why don't you even have to have a driver's license? Give me my fucking papers and let me get out of here. How dare you speak to me that way? But you can't because she's in charge. But look at that, okay, the drop ceiling. Yeah. Like there's no reason to have lighting like that. It doesn't cost- It's worse anything. than Walmart. Maybe to put some lamps or, or sconces or something. There's, there's nothing more oppressive than a drop ceiling with See what I'm saying? lighting. And there's no reason to have that. And everything is made out of vinyl and metal. There's not one natural material in there. Why not have wooden benches? What would that cost extra? Train stations used to have them, yeah. but they don't. Because the message there is all this shit's disposable. It'll be in a landfill in five years, and so will you. Everything about that is <laughs> reading to the citizen, and it's not an accident. We've been doing that since the day we dropped the atomic bomb on Hiroshima. All right, that's good. That is true. Since Why? the end of the second world. So I, I don't know. I listened to that whole interview. I listened to that whole podcast worth, worth listening to. I've listened to a lot of content this week. Um, but I heard that, and I was like, dude. It's weird that that ties back to our conversation like yeah. exactly from last week. Exactly. Oppressive architecture. And I think it's interesting is that he applies a motive to it. Like I just thought, oh, it's just uninspired cogs in a machine doing that. But he kind of attributes a motive. He's like, no, at the court, we'll get into this last one last clip. I'll, I'll play it, uh, after this next portion. But he's like, no, it's he thinks it's like intentional. It's it's a it's like a moral sin of our leaders where they think less of those who are under them and i don't think he's off how we should uh this is what i want Amer for america i saw this is like this is what the, this is the future republicans want and it's like chick-fil-a is that i wonder if that's a real chick-fil-a no there's no way it's got to be ai it's like a chick-fil-a and like a a German, what kind of architecture would you call that? Yeah, it's almost like Bavarian or something. Yeah. Like old German style. But it's beautiful. I'm like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Oh, it's just, but I mean, it, it, it does. It, <coughs> it evokes, <coughs> excuse me, it evokes a degree of excellence within yourself. Um, this is what it's like to see a Starbucks in a Disney park because it's like all on theme, but then you notice the logo. Yeah. It's like, what? Oh, fair enough. But hey, I will say that Starbucks does have a degree of like respect in their architecture, at least some of them. Uh, there are a couple businesses, even like Chipotle. There's a couple that are like decent. Um, they're not, you know. They were better before they went to the only drive-through locations. Mm -hmm. There was a cup. There was one specific Starbucks in town that uh, me and my wife would go to in the fall time because they had a 
like an actual fireplace and like yeah. board games, like chess and stuff. And we would go in the fall just to relax at that particular Starbucks. Yeah, and especially um, at the time, I imagine it was a, a severe step up. Yeah, it was pretty cool. But but right now, I think they're like going to the, like everything has to be quick service drive through. So that one got closed down. Mm-hmm. So it's a bummer, but it'd be cool to see more of that kind of stuff pop up, you know? So this next clip is, I thought it was quite profound. This was the one that one really stuck out to me. But he's talking about, just listen to it, I guess. I don't want to get ahead of him. Midwest, yeah. calling it private equity. Like, you should hate yourself a little bit. You know what I mean? And there's none of that. And I think that's part of the problem. There's not enough guilt among the ruling class. There's no sense of obligation to people beneath them. And that's one of the reasons they hate them so much. And that's one of the reasons that the fentanyl crisis has not even been acknowledged by Washington is because they kind of know they're responsible for it. Mm -hmm. And you wind up hating the people you've wronged. I have noticed. Like, what do you mean mm. that you might? That's wind profound. Up if, if you commit a sin against somebody, if you're cruel to somebody, unfair to somebody, you cheat somebody, you wind up hating that person as a way of justifying what you did. Mm. And the only way to stop that is by admitting what you did and saying it out loud to the person's face and asking for his forgiveness. Which again is why it's one of the twelve, the 12 step. step model works, yeah. right? But if you don't do that, you wind up blaming the person for the crime that you committed against him. And that's one of the reasons that people who don't get sober are so angry at the world. They're pissed at their parents. You meet these people, their parents send them to rehab six times, and they're pissed at their parents. Yeah. Why are you mad at your parents? They did everything they could. And the reason that <clears throat> Junkie's mad at his parents is because he knows that he's actually uh. the guilty party, and he's committed massive crimes against them, but he can't admit it, so he blames them. And that is true at a macro level as well. And if your ruling class of all the richest people have gotten rich by dicking over the people beneath them, running these fascist companies that spy on their employees' phone calls and like track them as they come in and out of the building and require them to work on Sundays with no overtime and just really inhumane sweatshop type practices, creepy Stasi stuff, those people end up having great contempt for their own employees. Yeah, you end up hating the people that you've wronged as a means of justifying your behavior, justifying, it's like it's escaping accountability. And so you despise the people that, you know, I can imagine that if you're a public official, like I can't imagine being Justin Trudeau. And I mean, he deserves the criticism he gets, but the amount of disdain he has for his citizens who, like I saw a video a couple weeks ago of a guy just telling him off to his face on a visit and you could tell he was so mad, Justin Trudeau. And I would never really probably do that to the guy, but the citizen was right. You know, like he's, he's a, he's a a psychopathic tyrant type figure. And, uh, you know, he deserves criticism, but I I think it's, uh, I imagine being in that position over time, you're going to grow disdain and, and almost hatred for the people and the citizens that, you're actually ineffectively governing over. Now, you're never going to please everybody, of course, but I can't imagine that every one of our leaders has it, or any of them almost, have any degree of empathy or care for the citizens. And I think that's why you see that, right? They're just forking over our tax dollars. They're not creating any new awe-inspiring infrastructure. I thought that was an interesting thing he said, Tucker. He said, um, 
they have no, it's as if they create these things, whether they just don't even acknowledge or know that they're affecting our senses and oppressing us through visual, through our visual, our sense of sight, in a sense. Now, it's not, this sounds like first world problems, you know, but, but it, there is something there. And when you have the potential and the capability and your country, country has that, if it were properly governed, the ability to like, yeah, like you look at the great societies, he makes the point, like Rome, that was, it ended in the fifth century and here we are, we still have, you know, some Roman architecture that we still look at and tour to this day and are awe-inspired by. And what do we have at the, is we have this MVD that's going to be thrown into the, into the dumpster, the whole thing, all of it. And um, none, none of it will last. It's, it's, a, it's a waste. And um, I thought that was kind of profound. But uh, that all drives me to this. So what's the solution? And it's, it's funny, it's like yesterday I had this kind of epiphany. Maybe, I don't know if that's, well, I definitely had a reckoning. But I've been on this kick of William Booth. William Booth's the founder of Salvation Army. And he founded it, what, in like in the eight, middle, eight, middle of 1800s? In the middle of the 19th century? And I was just curious. Like, I've come across his documentary before, and I was specifically curious about his form of, of business government and... Like, he, at, 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 eventually, as he formed the Salvation Army, he adopted the form of government, of like a military form of government. And he had his entire crew kind of take on military titles and wear military-style uniforms. And I just, I don't know, I just always, like, attached to that. I thought that was so cool. And so I, I began to get a little bit more curious, especially as I've been listening to more... Um, Leonard Ravenhill, I've spoken about him on the podcast. He's kind of like a revivalist, prayer-oriented preacher, originally from uh, Europe, and he went to Tyler, Texas, and preached a lot here in America, as he was received quite better. But uh, here's William Booth, here's his testimony. We entered the chapel late, in the dusk. I could hardly see the speaker, but just at that moment he was saying, A soul dies every minute. I was at that time without any experience of religion, but I felt it was better to live right than to live wrong, pleasing God and spending my powers to get others into such a life. But entrance to the kingdom was closed by an evil act of mine that required restitution. I remember as if it were yesterday, kneeling in the room under the chapel, the resolution, the finding of the boy I had wronged, the acknowledgement of my sin, and the peace that came after. I felt I could travel to the ends of the earth for Jesus Christ and to suffer anything to help the souls of other men. That's it. To and Great testimony. This guy has a way with words. Um, so I began to be, get curious about him, and I was like, okay, so there's a documentary. There's one that's uh, put out by the Salvation Army. On YouTube, it's about 30 minutes, really, really good. But I learned about his life and his testimony. And I mean, he got saved at like 17 years old, and then he went back to the kid at 16, as it said, and just repented. And, you know, his heart was changed and he felt good. And uh, what I'm most enthralled by is this guy's like a radical. I, I, you know, it's funny in modern day Christianity, it's like, 
I was raised in this era of, you know, you don't, you, you, um, even if it's not explicitly said this way, this is pretty much what it is, is that you, you taper off the gospel. Like you, you gotta, you know, dull the edges. Don't be too sharp. Don't be too, um, offensive or what was the thing, you know, you don't want to shove it down people's throats and this type of thing. Well, what literally his wife wrote a book and I think it was called aggressive Christianity where she's like advocating, we need to shove it down people's throats, like almost verbatim, not like, but she was, she was being like, very like, we need to, nobody, you know, some people when they're caught in their sins, we need to show them, we need to go to them. And it's like this, this aggressive Christianity. And I'm like, that's so foreign to me in America. But, but I think it helps inform this attitude of William Booth this next clip is his preaching style. He, he would go to the, the city and, and just preach and just uh, like do the street corner preaching thing. And people used to do that. Leonard Ravenhill's dad used to do that. And uh, no, no tools, no equipment, no, no, no beautiful whatever. And they would just, the word of God, that's it. Let's just see this clip. All the suffering and sorrow in the world comes from sin. Friends, I want to put a few straight questions. Have any of you got a child at home without shoes? Are your wives waiting in the dark for you to return without money? Are you going to spend in drink money that your wives need for food and your children for shoes? Friends, it was for you Christ died. Stop and be saved. When he was 20, he had to go to London to find work. In the crowded streets, he only found loneliness. And for employment, once again, a pawnbroker's in the Walworth Road. It was work, 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 morning, noon and night. I was allowed my liberty on the Sabbath and one night a week, but then back by ten or the door would be locked. I travelled long distances preaching the gospel, and many a Sunday night to get back in time, I had to hasten till out of breath. So watch, pause, that's good. He worked crazy hours at the pawn shop, but he would still go out and preach on foot. There's something interesting about this too. I'm, I'm like coming, coming to know, like for example, in music, there's a couple artists that like get really good at their craft just by touring and touring and touring, or even if they're not touring and they're just being like, there's a lot of great artists. Um, I don't know if I have one that comes to mind, but that kind of got popular by being um, buskers, like just being on the streets and playing and, and having that one-on-one connection with people. And uh, I think that was his special power and why he became so successful is that he was, he wasn't, you know, not to bash churches and in, in the confines of like the church culture necessarily. That's a part of his story too that I really took to is that at one point he was working within the Methodist church that he was, I guess, brought up in post his testimony, post salvation. And he worked there for seven years and, and eventually the church was kind of trying to kind of throttle his evangelistic spirit and not spirit but his his work as a pastor and they were at a conference and his wife stole, stood up and said no and uh and he you know he um agreed with her and they they left the assembly and they they left i guess formal 
um, organized church. But what I think is so fascinating is that getting outside of that culture and getting face-to-face with the people, I think he, that was his superpower because he, he began to know people in the same way like people singing songs. And this is a good example, um, the tallest man on earth. I, I believe he did it for a long time uh, on the streets just to people. And I think there's a craft and a relatability and you start to understand people better. You're not, you, you're not like, I don't know, different. You're culturally relating. And I think that's why his message was so potent was that he had so much practice. Not only did he have practice, but he was talking to the people directly. He, and he had tested all of these lines which ones worked, which ones didn't. Until eventually, it just like, I don't know, and not only that, his will to like do that in front of people to his own shame, to not shame, but I believe this next clip talks about it, getting laughed at, getting all these different things. I think even Christians, we scoff at that type of thing because there's maybe one or two scoffers or people like, uh, they would never, they were not even fertile soil. But all the countless numbers of people, it's undeniable the impact that man had in his preaching, the revivalist preaching, and it took at the time. Watch, play this clip. Army. What a strange name. It is an army, an army to carry salvation through the land, organized to liberate a captive world and to fight and overcome the enemies of God and man. Come on. have to fight. For years it met with hostility, even from the police and the magistrates, and with murderous attacks from the mobs. Stop. The salvationists prayed. Don't, don't lose that clip right there. Real quick, keep it up. You know, it's crazy. We live in an, a day in an era of, of cancel culture and all these different things. And I, for example, I'll, I'll, I'll be the first one to admit, yeah, it sucks to get people that hate you to have enemies, um, to be canceled, to be made fun of. But at some point, like him, he just kept going. It's like that honey badger attitude. Just keep going. Just keep going. There's people that will hear it, and they need to hear it. Don't let the, the evil, the enemies of the gospel, discourage the gospel from reaching the innocent, those that will take it. And he is strong. I think that represents to me, that's, the, that's kind of what I've been, I was trying to absorb from him. You hear in Joshua 1.9, be strong and of great courage. The Lord is with you wherever you go, that type of, uh, type of thing, right? Well, I think he really exemplifies this, this Christian strength, unashamed. I'm going to go out there and I'm preaching. I, I've witnessed it in my life. I've spoken highly of my uncle who, uh, who I served under for a little while. And he had that same type of attitude, that unashamed. He, he once carried a cross, like he built this cross. He, he has awesome story, actually. So central here in Albuquerque is like, it's central, it's, but it, it's, it's kind of like the, the boundary between like real bad Albuquerque and like working lower, lower middle class, working class. And then the further north you get, it, it becomes a little bit better. Um, but central is like known to be kind of notoriously like not, it's bad crime ridden, all those different things, druggies and all that stuff. Anyway, so he crafts this, um, this huge cross, heavy, heavy cross. He, I think he puts a caster on the bottom of it, but he's still carrying the weight of this cross, and he's carrying it 
he carries it all the way up central. And he garnered a lot of attention for it. But he really was that man of, like, the people, of the poorest. Keep playing this clip. And went on converting them. Most of the organization was undertaken by the general's eldest son, Bramwell. He was his father's right hand, especially when they had to face the tragic illness and death of Catherine Booth. So then, so then his wife passes, and... Um, what I'm most one of the you can pause it. In 1890, what I'm most interested in here with William Booth as well, well, I guess one of the other things is his legacy. Like you can always tell him a great man by his family, by the fruit he bears, you know. And uh, he 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 eventually the second general, so they refer to them by military names. So William Booth, the founder, was the first general. Then the second general was his firstborn son, um, Bramwell Booth. And so Bramwell had a, his first daughter, who was Catherine Bramwell Booth. And so this is, this is her, and she is a gem, an evidence of the real life that was William Booth, in my mind. A beautiful legacy. You were telling us earlier that as a girl you looked after your sisters and you actually held them as babies in your arms. Is it now comfort for you to have them with you oh, now? Oh, comfort, it's heaven on earth. You see, they are not only sisters. Mm. They're all kinds in sisters. But my sisters are my friends as well as sisters. I should love them if they weren't my sisters because of, of what they're like, you see. And isn't it lovely, allow me to say this, that I've got them both to live with me. She's now in her nineties. Old and dull and that. And there are the, my, my two most beloved friends. Because they're not just sisters. Lots of people have sisters that they don't well, I won't say don't like, but but my sisters are like angels. I was yes, weeping really, listening to this yesterday. I really was. I was well looked after by two angels. Another newspaper about the same appearance, whatever it was, said I was well looked after by two dragons. <laughs> so in, when they're in, in certain bussy moods... So that's I good. Say, Here comes the go dragon. back, go to the clip right before this. So I believe this is... Um, I actually don't know which this, this clip is. It's the same woman. Yeah, she, was, she died in, I think, at 103 or 104 years old. Commissioner Catherine Bramwell Booth. I don't remember him before he was in his 60s. So he seemed an old man to us, and yet he didn't seem a bit uh, dull. He was so full of eagerness about everything. Of course, my grandfather was a man full of surprises. He'd... Uh, suddenly say in the middle of tea, now then, uh, let's have testimonies. Catherine, uh, you give your testimony. It was rather uh, awe-inspiring then for a small girl. However, we loved him very much, and especially we, we um, thought so much about him because of my father's attitude. I can remember now see a picture of them almost as if they were present to my mind's eye. Father and the general talking together so eagerly, bursting out into laughter. 
William Booth used to throw his head back and roar with laughter. Then all of a sudden, the general would look round and say, Children, now we'll pray. Sometimes about the very thing they'd been discussing. Sometimes about us and whether we were as good as we ought to be, and so on. Oh, he never put on a praying voice. No, never. It was the same. And it brought God very near to us, you know, that kind of praying. Um, when I was a captain... So, that's good. Post, the reason why this is so powerful to me is it's like, it's a window into what it's like for a family to bring heaven to earth. Like, I, I, was, I was just listening to that. Like, you see that, that passing down, that legacy, that heritage, rooted in a faithful man's life. And I think that's what really got me going yesterday, was like, oh, that's all I want. And I was praying, you know, and I was just thinking, man, I just want to live, I just want to live, you know, 10% of a life of William Booth, you know? I, I, and, and her telling her about her dad and, and the reason why they were all, as granddaughters, um, so fond of their grandfather is because of their dad's attitude toward him and watching their dad and his, and then I'm thinking like, as I'm like trying to like channel William Booth and like, you know, absorb as much wisdom from him uh, through these videos and clips, how can I, I just, it, it's, 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 it's emotion evoking because I think, you know, my son to, to how, 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 uh, is there anything I could be more proud of than my son to like carry out the Lord's work and for me and him to laugh and, and, you know, and not only that, but just a window into their family culture of like, and then we were at dinner and he said, hey, why don't we hear your testimony, Catherine? And then we would get together and we would pray. And I don't know all these things. Like I know I'm pretty not like that. That's not necessarily my family culture. And so when I see that, I'm like, wow, that's something really to like pursue after. That's all I want is this legacy, this idea. Can you go to 2135 in that same video? And it's rooted in his care for the poor. It's rooted in his heart and his devotion to the Lord, even at his own you know, cost. And to see that his family's all participated in it as well. It's just so beautiful to me. So this is Catherine she describing her really grandfather. in love with people. And to make people good, he believed that God was able to recreate in man the original design and however low or besotted or degraded a person might be, that person could be restored to the likeness of God. He despaired of no one. No one was too bad. Uh, go for souls and go for the worst. That was one of the things that he constantly said to, to officers. And he lived up to it himself. He lived up to it himself. That's good. Go for the souls and go for the worst. I think I'm just like, I got convicted by that yesterday and reminded. You know, he said, um, he had a heart for the lost, <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> he had a heart for the lost because of who he once was. 
and uh, before he came to the Lord. And uh, I love that fierce attitude and confidence. I can't imagine the people that he he must have preached to who were low, were in their depths, were at the end. And we talk about him sometimes. We talked about him last episode. You know, you drive by these guys that are just, it seems like they're dead, like they're done. Like there's, there's no hope. And I think like hearing about this and like kind of praying for like, Lord, give me a heart for these, these people and to have this attitude of like the worst of them are not without hope. Listen to this speech. I'm glad you are enjoying yourself. The salvationist is the friend of happiness. Making heaven on earth is our business. Serve the Lord with gladness is one of our favorite mottoes. So I am pleased that you are pleased. But amidst all your joys, don't forget the sons and daughters of misery. Do you ever visit them? Come away and let us make a call or two. Here is a home, in family. They eat and drink and sleep and kick and die in the same chamber. Here is a drunken novel, void of furniture, wife of skeleton, children in rags, father maltreating the victims of his neglect. Here are the unemployed, wandering about seeking work and finding none. Yonder are the wretched criminals, cradled in crime, acting in and out of the prison all the time. There are the daughters of shame, deceived and wronged and ruined, traveling down the dark incline to an early grave. There are the children, fighting in the gutters, going hungry to school, growing up to fill their parents' places. Brought it all on themselves, do you say? Perhaps so. But that does not excuse our assisting them. Awesome. You don't Keep going. demand the certificate of virtue before you drag the drowning creature out of the water, not the assurance that a man has paid his rent before you deliver him from the burning building. But what shall we do? Content ourselves by singing a hymn, offering a prayer, or giving a little good advice? No. Ten thousand times no. We will pity them, feed them, reclaim them, employ them. Perhaps we shall fail with many, quite likely. But our business is to help them all the same. And that in the most practical, economical, and Christ-like manner. So let us aid to the rescue. For the sake of our own peace, the poor wretches themselves, cleaners and children, and the savior of us all. That's good. That to me is just wild. The uh you know, like I said, he had such a way with words. He's so frank, you know, he's calling them wretches. And they are. Like he's not he's not um using any euphemism euphemisms to address people in their state because they know it and there's so much power in that oh lord give me a heart for those people but what i find so interesting is that um 
I'm so fascinated with this idea of like, so I, um, I looked at that and I was like, this attitude of I'm going to, I'm going to bring heaven to earth. They said that. And I think in the, that video or another video, he said that we're, I am in the, we're in the business of bringing heaven to earth. And that line captured me. I was like, that's it. We're in a sermon series at church right now talking about that. The Lord's prayer. Our Father in heaven, how holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And there are certain people that catch that vision and attitude like the, like the apostles in Acts where they're going out and they're, they're going to take it. They're going to take it even if they get in trouble, even if they get thrown in jail. And, and, and I don't see a lot of that. And I'm not shaming anybody, but I, I, it's hard because sometimes we don't see that, especially within the Christian context. We don't see that, that rugged, risk-taker, you know, strong, planting flags, taking ground in the, in the truest Christian way. Not by force. I'm not saying by violence or by force. That's the beauty of Christianity. And they said it earlier, he's like, when we get attacked, we prayed for our enemies, magistrates. These are politicians. These are city officials. These are police officers. And these are other citizens that hate what we're doing. And yet he is, you know, Skip said it one time, was just, his gaze is steeled. Like it is, uh, to steal our gaze is like to, to just be unmovable, immovable devoted to that mission of bringing heaven to earth. And there are many things that kind of deter us away from that. And we talked about it, it's like this idea of feudalism, and we're never actually going to do it. We're never actually going to do it. And that cuts us off. And I don't think that we should even think about that. Our job is the Great Commission to go therefore and do that. And so I'm looking at that. That is a model. That is the model for me right now, to go and take ground. I have a lot to learn. I had this conversation with my wife. I called her yesterday. I was crying because I was like, man, I'm so convicted and motivated and passionate and uh, just revived in my spirit in a similar way that I had been in in, in the past um, at critical junctures in my life. And and I was telling her, and she's like, you don't have to, you know, you don't have to <laughs> follow in. <laughs> what she said, she said, because uh, I was talking about my uncle, and I, and I do, I feel this burden to kind of carry the baton and kind of carry out some of the legacy there, the heritage of like caring for the poor. And, and I don't really have a heart for the poor, straight up. I care about my family, you know, I care about, you know, our friends and family and our church and stuff like that. But there is that, that that's not so much a thing on my mind, a concern. Everybody else has got their responsibilities. And yes, but that's not how he saw it. That's not how Jesus says it. Did you visit me when I was in prison? I think it's in James. He says, true religion, true religion is to care for the orphan and the widow and to keep oneself unstained from the world. I think that guy modeled the scriptures as I read them quite well in a relatively modern day a lot a, a lot of adaptation has to be taken i'm sure uh given the difference in time that was in the mid 1800s he died i believe in 1912 
He lived up until the late 80s, his late 80s. Obviously, the Salvation Army is still around today. I had no idea. Did you know that it was such a gospel-based, like literally salvation-based? It was called a Christian mission at its outset. I didn't know. I mean, I assumed that there was like Christian like DNA there, um, but it's hard to know. Like, there's a quite a few organizations now. Like, I'm sure St. Jude's is like in a similar position mm. where now they're seeking like the health of sick kids, but the gospel's not present anymore. Yeah. So I would be curious to study like mm-hmm. where the Salvation Army is now. And, you know, obviously they're not so front facing with the faith stuff anymore. Yeah. So it's, it's curious to know like. Because now we just know it, at least in America, as a thrift store, probably where I got this jacket, you know, 13 years ago. Well, that's kind of all I knew it as. It's like, a, and we don't even really, do we have one here? Yeah, we have a couple, but I think they've, I feel like the Salvation's Army was like a precursor to Goodwill yeah. and that sort of thing. And now it's kind of like on the decline. And then we have Goodwill, the secular version of Salvation Army. Yeah. But it is interesting. It seems like as if the power of Salvation Army within the legacy, well, you can't keep it going forever, you know? But you do see like... um I was looking at the early, the documentary and it was like early on, it looked like the signage, everything was just a vibrant, powerful, potent message that like visually brought heaven to earth, kind of what we're talking about, the architecture thing. The signage was beautiful. Like all these illustrations I saw of the early um, locations, uh, the, the, the halls that they would all meet in. Like he, he advocated very clearly. He's like, I want wood floors. No one ever got saved uh, with a cold, something like that. He was, he, he was, his, his attitude was quite, not abrasive, uh, frank, yeah. But he talked about uh, advocating for wood floors and getting people out, in, out from the cold in concrete slab into wood floors and the warmth. He, it addresses exactly what Tucker Carlson said. Get us some natural materials in here. Let's get some wood. Would it kill us to get some wood benches? And that's and, and and now you see William Booth Booth here advocating for um, wood floors. There's something to it, man. Something about the human spirit and, and design and, and and attacking the senses and and inviting the the less the least of these. Jesus says, "If you how you treat the least of these is how you treat me." That's that's a, that's convicting. That's convicting. So that's what I'm, I'm, I'm working on right there. That's what I need to work on right there. You know, because then you're just like, okay, we'll have a heart for the poor and go give, go give to every guy on the corner ask, you know, asking for money. And it's like, no. That's not going to do it. Then, you know, there's practical things. There's actually, he said it toward the end there. He's talking about, we'll clothe them. We'll give them shelter. We'll feed them. Employ we'll give them, them work. Exactly. So, of course, that takes infrastructure and a lot of different things. So we do have some of that within the church structure here locally as well. Um, food for thought. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be meditating on some of these things for a little while now. But, uh, yeah, that's pretty much all I got. I don't have a final video. Do you have a final video? Did you see anything funny lately? Nothing fun, dude. This week was a rough week on the internet. Oh, dude. Uh, but yes. it's worth noting, I had made a comment that maybe they weren't so front-facing with their faith, but 
the mission statement, the last sentence of the Salvation Army mission statement today is, its mission is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and to meet human needs in his name without discrimination. Wow. So they, at least, you know, it seems like they're holding to their biblical backbone, which is pretty cool. Read that one more time. I'll read the whole thing. That was the last, the last sentence. Yeah, let's hear it. The Salvation Army's mission statement. The Salvation Army is an international movement, is an evangelical part of the universal church, Christian church. Uh, its message is based on the Bible. Its ministry is motivated by the love of God. Its mission is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and to meet human needs in his name without discrimination. Hmm. Sounds pretty solid to me. Yeah, that's great. You know, what's also beautiful about William Booth, he's a very smart man, great orator, great speaker, but he was very wise in the setting up of this um, organization. In fact, it created such a, um, in the politics, in the inner workings of the politics, it was a big conflict because he passed it down to his son after he was gone. And so his son, um, Bramwell Booth, uh, he started getting older and started losing his health, but he, he felt so strongly to, to carry over the structure. It was, it was that, I believe it was by appointee. So the general, only the general can appoint the next general. And, uh, but he, and, and they have it for life. They're a general for life. But then, you know, this general is becoming, you know, ill and is his leadership and all these different things. So there became this big controversy and they were like, well, we need to figure out a way around this. And so there was this inner politic of like power fight and it seemed kind of ugly, but Bramwell was like, no, I need to, you know, we, I, he felt so burdened to maintain the structure as it was kind of like preserve it as it was for his father's sake which is another indicator of like, oh, I love Bramwell. I couldn't, you know, I, I envy, you know, the, the connection of, the familial connection there. But um, then there, there was this whole thing, and then they had to figure this whole thing out, but it was, it was based on the initial structure set up by William Booth. He was, was a very smart, smart man, and uh, a guy I need to learn a lot from. I guess he wrote an autobiography or maybe there was a biography written about him that I'm listening to. But uh, anyway, cool stuff, meaningful stuff. But it is true that St. Jude and a lot of these hospitals, probably Presbyterian, right? I mean, like a lot of these hospitals, if not, you know, the great majority of them, were started as Christian missions in bringing heaven to earth, really, in serving the people and doing God's will on earth. And what's interesting about these ones specifically, t- to me, is that they're outside of the church structure. You know, like the organized church structure. And to me, that's fascinating. Not that there's anything wrong with the church structure, necessarily. But what, what, what I'm most fascinated with myself, is I've never been interested in formal ministry. But you might argue like this podcast is somewhat ministry. It's kind of like a ministry of sorts, just based on the subject matter. But what interests me is engaging with the world constantly. Like I don't want to become isolated. I'm very conscious of it, actually, specifically in regards to like separating myself from the world. And I can. I'm prone to it. I think all of us are somewhat prone to it. But 
to constantly be like engaged in mission. I think that's what was so fascinating to me is the founding of Salvation Army before it was named Salvation Army. It was called a Christian mission. And, and say what you will, I don't actually know much about the Inquisition, but they had missions. And I imagine, without any evidence, but I imagine the missions were instituted as outreach-oriented, similar structures. And you don't see many things like this today. And it makes me curious. Now, you do in the church. The churches are there, no doubt. But I do think they're slightly different than the mission. And I think I'm fascinated with that. For what it's worth. So I'm chewing on that. Anyways, that's pretty much all I got. Thank you guys for listening. I hope that was edifying, encouraging, of any sort of value. If it was, give the video a like if you're on YouTube. Um, give us a five-star rating. I think Spotify, I think I got a lot of haters that gave me some bad reviews. Give me some uh, positive reviews on Spotify to offset the, the haters. And uh, that's about it. Love you. Bye.